Now, um, you know, I'm going to start with the first conversation I ever had with you. And that's before I even uh, know who you are as a person was the most pretentious film school conversation, which was um, is film better or digital? <laughs> and this is like this is like back in 20. It was at the film fest I after party. That, yeah. Um, yeah. And like what the, um, <laughs> the big the big building, I, I forget which one it is, but. Is one of them downtown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but that's what we're talking about. So we'll start light. We'll talk about that. Um, I know you're very opinionated about that. What do you think about um, shooting film versus digital? I think the most important thing is to keep both of them around. Like, I don't think... I'm not a black and white person. I have deep, deep love for both, uh, both formats. Um, but I think there's a time and a place for both of them. I think there's undoubtedly great things and great benefits uh not only financially but educationally and being able to use digital uh, for a lot of productions nowadays which makes sense especially in the digital world but film also is it's the most important thing is to keep film around you know keep it as an option it's not like graphite is better than charcoal they both have their place they both have completely different looks and it's more about you know if the project allows the person in charge to decide whether they want to do either or um that's the most important part so it really depends on the person the project overall yeah but then what makes you so you read a story you can shoot both with either a digital medium or with a film Mm -hmm. medium um wouldn't be more a matter of taste to choose which one of course um or, or yeah so so you think preferences also matter a lot. oh yeah and sometimes there's projects where you mix them like i know we've done that in the past a lot of productions mm. nowadays that you know want that 35 millimeter two perf look they'll shoot a lot of the daytime stuff with film and then some of the more low light stuff with alexa and push the iso i know they did that on silence uh they did that on uncut gems um, and we've done that. We, me and Davi did that for our senior thesis. You know, all the all the nighttime stuff in Eyes of Idolin was a uh, digital Canon C three hundred and pushed, and the rest of it was was film. Interesting. And uh, there's um, I listened to a podcast with I think the DP of Knives Out, and he was talking about how Ryan Johnson likes to shoot film, and he wanted to shoot Knives Out mm-hmm. film. And then the DP was talking about how it's easier for him to achieve that quote-unquote film look using a digital format than if he would to shoot it with film and then uh, color it right to make it look how he wants yeah. it to look. Um, so it's interesting because a lot of people now want to have a film look, as it is now being called. Um, but it's just crazy how much color grade can do as yeah, well. Yeah, of course. Um, it. it yeah, it's like a lot of well-shot projects are colored really bad, um, and uh, it just destroys the whole thing. Or the vice versa, a lot of projects that are shot just okay, um, then they're color graded really well, and then people are like, "Whoa, that's like it, it looks great." It looks beautiful. and that's the thing about colors nowadays is, and personally, I feel like it's approaching the point where they might deserve their own Academy Award category because they're really completing the cinematographer's job, you know. And there's, a, there's also for options sure. nowadays where if you want that film look, but, you know, for whatever reason your production needs to shoot digital, you can go into the DI, you know, you have your digital project, you can get it scanned onto film, 
to get like a real film grain and scan it back to digital. So there's a, that's a, of course, basically a way, it's like a bougie way of doing film grain just as a, like an overlay. Cause that's a solution for a lot of us. But if you, if you, that's kind of like the, the medium uh, solution, if you want to, you know, the, on one spectrum, it's shooting film on one, it's digital with grain overlays. You can always get scanned on the film, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And when you shoot something as a cinematographer, do you, how involved are you with the color grading process? It depends on every production is different. You know, there's some where you just get flown in for the job and then you go out and you never see it again until it's already finished and colored, which has happened recently, which is not ideal. But more, on more personal projects where people want to involve all their collaborators and it's less business oriented, I usually find myself being pretty involved. I mean, like with all the you know, with all the films that we did on Sky, you know, I was always in the room there coloring. Uh, and it's something that you kind of have to negotiate on the front end and you might not always have the privilege of being there at, at the end of the day. But ideally, it's something that you, you want to be there for. Like I said, because it's completing mm-hmm. half of your and, job, and- you know. It's, so, it's such an integral part nowadays. And uh, so at one point, did you think that instead of doing something like directing or i know you've directed as well but focusing on um to focus on cinematography instead or like what enticed you more uh to be the person who focuses on cinematography rather than directing this is a long story if if i may get into it i've been making films since i was like five and i think you know i always grew up thinking that i was the only one who was into it so naturally i had to do everything i had to write it direct it, edit it, shoot it, you know, whatever it may be. And up until like before I came to SCAD, really, that's kind of like what I had formed in my head. I'm like, oh, I'm a filmmaker. That means I'm a writer, director, whatever. It's like I shot the project, but that's because I didn't have anyone else there to shoot it. Um, but I was always so focused on the visual aspect of it. Um, and, I, you know, naturally, because that's, you know, it's a visual medium. How can you not? Um, I came to film school thinking I wanted to direct and realized that, you know, I cared way more about the camera. And frankly, I was way better at, you know, handling the visual side of things. Like, I don't think I'm the best writer in the world, even though I've, you know, tried writing for years. And I still write, you know, because why not? It's free to do. Like, there's so, you know, you can draw and you can write. Why not do them? Um, but I realized I actually got way more, I got the same amount of joy out of helping others, like, achieve something visual as I did, you know, directing my own project. And honestly, I think all that background has only helped me become a better visual image maker because I think like a director. You know, I don't, I don't think like a technician. I'm always keeping story, perspective, and style in mind. And I also really, frankly, I get bored of myself. Like, I don't, if I, if I try and direct a project, I have such a low tolerance for myself it's only a matter of time before I start thinking like, oh, like, why am I the one doing this shit? Like, what do I have to say or whatever? I get so much uh, joy out of being a chameleon and wrapping my head around one director and then completely switching and do someone to do someone else. And, and I just love being versatile that way and just constantly changing it up. And that's the thing as a DP is or a cinematographer is you you're working all the time, too. And I like that. I like that kind of grind. I like being able to be on set so often because directing is great because you hold the creative keys to the project and it's kind of like your baby oftentimes. But you're not on set as much as if you were to be a DP. 
and I'm a physical person. I love to use my body and being on set all the time, exhausting myself, operating the camera, you know, this, that, and the other. I just love that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, different people work differently with directors as a cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell that, oh, projects are different and it depends uh, what's the style and look you're going for. But a lot of the times I think that cinematographers tend to come up with a style and then when you watch a film you're able to tell like oh that looks like that person shot it although they're completely different projects Mm -hmm. um so i was curious in your experience how how do you work with directors as a director of photography well it's funny because the i think one of the biggest compliments i ever got was at our senior showcase when they said hey spring quarter is canceled we all got together at a brewery had beer and watched movies which is great but a friend of mine said, you know, like you lens these two different films really differently. I was like, wow, that's like actually a really awesome compliment because I try and not do the same thing twice. And regardless of each director, that's like something that I try and do with myself, not only for challenge, not only for progression, but also just because I get bored. I get bored so easily. And so if I do one project where I'm like all sticks or, you know, really curated compositions, I tend to want to switch it up. But of course the director is a, huge part of that conversation and I mean so far directors have been pretty open to like asking me what I think in my opinion but other directors like you know for example I did Calvin Herbst's senior thesis Brighter Colors and he does a really good job of like really pushing me in a certain direction that I hadn't been comfortable with at that point like up until Brighter Colors I hadn't really experimented with ultra wide lenses or like done a lot of lens diffusion like in camera and he really wanted to lean into those things and you know do all these crazy uh visual things and like I loved that challenge and I jumped into it and it was a lot of fun just like messing around and mucking around um Devin I shot his Devin Sowell I shot his senior thesis recently and he was like really into longer lenses and zooms and that hadn't been something that I had really messed around with before as like a personal preference, but we got there and, you know, we're testing things and having fun while shooting a movie. And it was, it was so fun. So I don't know, there's just so much, there's so much you can do. And if you kind of like, I, I don't think it's good. You know, everyone's different. A DP can assign himself a style or herself a style. Um, but I think it's really good to break that mold and, you know, not be so narrowed into what you personally prefer. Well, I also think they're open to having that conversation with you because most people who, you know, in our circle who know you, um, they also trust your work. Trust so is a big thing too. I think that's all. Uh, yeah, that's important. If if you were someone who was probably less well known, it would have been more like, oh, like I'm the director, I, which is a horrible approach mm-hmm. to have. Right. Like who I think that whoever comes with their title and wants to keep remembering reminding people what their title is they're insecure in what they're doing mm-hmm. because if you know what you're doing you wouldn't need to keep telling how great yeah. you are or what you are yeah. um so i think yeah working with people that you trust that you know that hey they are in that place because they know uh, they've proven themselves or they're they know what mm-hmm. they're doing so even if we have a difference in opinion it's better to have a conversation than just say oh no well i was thinking to do it this way so let's do yeah. it that way um, so definitely trusting people that you work with, especially we're all creative people and being creative, you're opinionated and, 
um, it results in a lot of clashes, especially when you work on a film, even if it's a short film, you spend, uh, you should spend about, I don't know, about a year working on it from pre-production to post-production mm -hmm. at least. Um, and that's a lot of time to spend with people and try to collaborate with them. So you will clash, but um, I think working with people that you have good chemistry with mm -hmm. and you trust uh, just changes a lot oh, yeah. of things. Which uh, I'm also curious to know, at least for myself, I've done projects that I loved and I thought this is, you know, going to kill film festivals and um, it's great. It's going to be great because I did all the shots I wanted and it looks the best, but the opposite happens. And it gets zero recognition. At the same time, I do something very simple um, and it gets a lot more praise and recognition and uh, festival selections than the previous mm -hmm. one. Um, so it's really interesting to me, the balance of technicality and how something looks and the cinematography of it and also the story. Um, I know everyone says story matters more than anything, but you can have a great story and shoot it horribly mm -hmm. and probably it's not going to get the eyeballs that you want on it. Um, so what do you think about that balance well, of having technicals and story? Well, story is, of course, that word that we always hear all the time. But the word I, the word I don't hear enough is also soul. Like the soul of the project is one thing. And frankly, like sometimes you can have you can have a project that doesn't have the best story per se. But because you inject so much soul and passion in the project, it becomes something completely different. Like uh, Eyes of Idolon is an example. And this is no offense to Davi or anything, but it's not like Eyes of Idolon is like your Oscar winning script. It doesn't, it's not a traditional script at all. I mean, when I, you know, the script, the initial script versus the end product are, you know, very different things. But there was just a lot of creative energy and ideas and care that was put into that project that I think ended up elevating it to something that it was supposed to be, I guess. Um, but of course, like technical, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's never just about technicality. It has to be about, you know, the substance. I mean, technica technicality is, uh, it's only there to support the story, to support the soul or the substance. So, of course, it shouldn't ever be just about that. Yeah, and festivals are weird. And I say festivals because... Um, for us who we make more short mm -hmm. films than other things, festivals are a great way to get mm -hmm. recognized. Um, so sometimes I go on short of the week and I just look at films that got into huge festivals and I genuinely don't get it. <laughs> I, it either, either the story is something that's like, okay, that's like something I can see in a class project or it just looks really bad. Like it has all the things that we try to avoid. Mm -hmm. So it has white walls and uh, lack of production design, lack of any special kind of cinematography. So to be honest, I, I, I have no idea how projects sometimes get into film mm -hmm. festivals. Um, you know, sometimes you can argue that they have big stars or big yeah. names attached to them. And that's a definitely, you know Sundance some feature films get in there that get horrible reviews but they're in Sundance yeah. and that's because they have a big producer or a big star attached to it and that means they can sell more tickets that's understandable um, but then sometimes you go on short of the week and you just see things that make no sense <laughs> uh, 
do, do you ever have you ever like gone through short of the I weekend have, yeah or yeah some... i don't like spend too much time on it but i've seen some things on there and i mean it's so hard because in a, it's it's not like filmmaking is a race you know there's no like end end you know definitive end to where someone wins or loses or whatever place and it's hard to judge you know like there's different curators for every platform with different opinions and different reasons as to why they might have chosen a specific project you know i'm pretty naive but i don't know how much backstage stuff or reputation goes into that i know some does uh and it also depends on the time you know i mean like right now you, you know a lot of people could argue that peen seeing i said peen sorry Seeing people of color and representation and inclusion on screen matters way more than like good cinematography. And that's, you know, I know that right now that's a huge, huge thing that people are looking for and hungry to see. So, and it's always changing, you know, it's like you have to, um, I don't think that anyone should ever be like creating a project with like festival programmers in mind to like abide by their interests. But you do need to kind of look at the world and gauge, all right, like what, like what does the world want to see right now? Or like, what do, you know, this specific niche of people want to see? What do I want to see in the world? You know? Yeah. I think having, like you said, having a soul and we're artists because we want to tell stories, at least in our Mm -hmm. field. And that should be your priority for sure. But also, you know, we want to make art to be seen by people. Mm-hmm. What's a good way to be seen by people to get recognized at film festivals? So I understand both sides of the story. It's a game um, for sure. I don't... Yeah, so I, I think festivals are an instrument to get to where you want. I always think of, um, for example, Damien Chazelle, mm-hmm. right? He wanted to make La La Land more than he wanted to make yeah. Whiplash. But they wouldn't let him make... La La Land because it was a musical and musicals as a movie wasn't really uh, popular. It's getting a little bit more popular now. So he made his blacklisted script, which was Whiplash. And then he's like, okay, now that I'm proven, I can make La La Land. Uh, so he kind of used the the system, not in a bad way, um, in a good way to get to his ambition yeah, and get to his desire. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a balance. Now, you know, we both went to film school. Um, there's this big debate about film school, whether it's uh, necessary or it's not. After graduating and having this experience, what do you think about it? I think the biggest thing film school offers is obviously a network and just putting yourself in a circle with friends who are willing and hungry to work for free, to be honest. I mean, think about how much projects we all churn out and we're all just like diving in there doing whatever position we can we can do and just helping each other out for that four-year period and that's such a vital period to find yourself as as an artist or a technician and you know live and learn and make mistakes confidently without worrying that you're gonna like really screw someone over or lose your job or, or any of that so I think it's you know to people who can afford the privilege to go to film school because it is a privilege it is massively beneficial, not because an institution is number one on Hollywood Reporter, not because, you know, the equipment, but just because the people and people's willingness to crew up, that's like the real advantage. And even, you know, as far as teachers, teachers are great and there's good and bad teachers everywhere. Um, but you learn so much from your friends and there's just being there on the day and finding mentors and people are going to help you out more than anything. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, 
your experience at film school or outside film schools, whatever you want to make it to be. So, you know, there's plenty of people at film school who don't do anything for four years. (laughs) So, right, right. I, I, I think honestly, and it's absurd. The biggest thing I learned at film school is that the gear and the people really, really, as in people, I say the number of people that you have on your set really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. When we're there, we're so, you know, we want to do what we see on traditional behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. We're like, hey, we have all this gear and we can get 40 people to be on our crew. Let's do that, mm-hmm. you know. But at the end of it, when, you, when you're done with it and you get more of a realistic view, at least for me, now I want to make films that have five people exactly. on set. I wanna, I wanna do like even like intro to film kind of classes, or even before that. Obviously, with more experience, and that's what you can say is the other thing. Film school gives you, if you're proactive and you keep doing things, it gives you an experience that you probably can can, but it may be difficult to invest your own time and do it if you don't go through it. But yeah, like now I'm working on a script and I just want to have five people yeah. on it. And I, I'm like, you know what? We'll rent a budget-friendly camera and shoot it in the right way, but run and gun and just tell a good story. And that's that's so um, exciting. That's so liberating because you almost see the opposite film school. You go to film school and you see all this quantity. You see the best gear in the industry. You see like a 40-person set, like you're saying, but you're seeing them do the thing and you're seeing it go down and maybe you see it after the fact when it's all said and done and you're like this just like doesn't look or feel like anything that's i don't know not valuable but it's funny to see like all these gear gadgets being used all these people for like essentially no output you know what i mean and that's why you know quality versus quantity is so important and there's definitely something that's exciting especially nowadays about doing something with a smaller crew less people Especially, you know, I could, I could see as a director that frees you up too. You're not having to worry about all the apparatus, you know, because that's that becomes such a such a thing sometimes when you're trying to do a massive project. Like you spend all this time and money to just get there and be rushed, you know, not make anything that actually counts. Um, you know, similarly, we did a really small project a few months ago. And it was like literally like some, you know, the smallest crew I've had in like four years. Um, But we had so much time to like really finesse and actually make a movie and actually dial in performances and play around. And that was like so nice. Playing around on set is, you know, that's when you get really uh, magical results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to get that out of your system Mm -hmm. if you have that filmmaking ambition. Um, I made uh, I made a I made a film a few years ago, and I wanted to kind of pull all my Michael Bay moments, right? So I wanted uh, techno jib shots, and I wanted a stunt driver, and I wanted to do every crazy crazy thing that I dreamt of. And uh, I think it was important for me to get that out of my system to then again be like, okay, but what matters more? And it just sounds so cliche, and I hate it when people say it is the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the story, I, I think you don't have to necessarily have something new to say because that's difficult mm-hmm. to do. Uh, but I think when you add your personal touch to it, there's a soul and electricity in the story that you were saying um, that when other people read it, they can connect mm-hmm. with it. And I think that feeling is just 
irreplaceable by anything else. Of course, else. like your own specificity. Um, like you can tell the same story that's been told. You can tell Romeo and Juliet that's been told so many times, but it hasn't been told yet with your own personal touch. And at the end of the day, that's really, if anything, that's the one thing that you can contribute to the world is your unique perspective. That doesn't mean you have to make a story about your life or that encapsulates exactly what, how you think or what you think about but identifying like what makes your touch kind of unique and what you know you you can say newly or freshly with with that you know mm -hmm. yeah what annoys me the most is sometimes i would watch that would happen a lot in classes i would watch short films and before we even are attached to the character or care about the film at all you see this two minute long dolly shot that just like goes through the scenery and, and sure it may look beautiful and I, every time I, I would be like i'm gonna say it anyways if they want to hate me they can hate me but i just i'm saying it out of good intent and i would say hey like trust me no one cares about your dolly <laughs> shot it it looks pretty and i'm sure you loved getting it but i don't care about your characters yet so why am i watching a two-minute dolly mm -hmm. shot uh and, uh, but, you know, as I said, I think it's important for people to do it, get out of their system, be excited about that, and then kind of be like, oh, you know what, maybe that's not the most important thing. I mean, totally. And that's, you know, that's, again, a benefit of film school. You're there, you got all these people and resources, like, why not, like, flex your muscles as far as you can go? You know, go ahead, you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, a lot of people go through four years, and they don't even tap into a fraction of their resources there. So definitely, you know, you're you're not to blame for doing that at all. You know, that's just you experimenting and, you know, you went a little too far in one way, you know, on your own accord. And now you've recognized like, all right, maybe that's not necessarily what I want to do. Like, that's so important, you know. For sure. Uh, I want, I'm curious, what's the craziest or scariest um, shot that you've ever captured as a cinematographer? And when I say scary, I mean like... It, it logistically logistically was scary, scary. oh boy that's a i'm gonna have to think about because i've seen some very interesting bts photos with you in it and when i say interesting i mean they're uh not uh conventional <laughs> How so, so? <laughs> that's why <laughs> so that's why i'm asking I'm curious to know which which BTS photos are you scariest. talking about? Well, this is not too much of a crazy extreme, but I have seen you on the shoulder of someone. Oh yeah, uh, getting a shot. Yeah, that was in Italy. We were we were doing uh, a project in Italy, and I just uh, the tripod. I'm a short guy, so like I needed. I put the tripod all the way up, but I had no way of getting up there. And Ned Cooper, who is my good friend and who is my camera assistant on that one, I just decided to get on his shoulders. Yeah. There's a, I don't know, there's a, there's a couple wacky ones like that. I don't know. Um, crazy as far as like, sometimes, you know, I, it's not like I've put any of my crew necessarily in danger, but I, yeah, sometimes sure. I do put myself in a little bit sketchy situations because uh, I used to be a dancer and I'm pretty body aware and I feel confident like if I have to, you know, run super fast or, you know, do, do kind of like a tricky balancing act. So there are many times where I probably put myself in situations with the camera that I shouldn't necessarily just because I have too much confidence in my own physical ability. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm trying to keep it, trying to keep things as safe and sound as possible. You know, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Has it ever failed you? Like a situation where you think that you can pull this off and it didn't happen? Um, I mean, that happens all the time. It's not like that situation resulted in like an injury on my on my behalf. It was more like, all right, yeah, like maybe this doesn't really look good or maybe I was too soft here or whatever. Um, to answer a question, probably the craziest and scariest and most irresponsible shot I ever accomplished uh, was before film school, before I got, you know, a formal education. But I actually... I put together a feature film in, in my senior year of high school with all my friends. And there was this one shot where I had my good friend, Max, car surfing a car. And at his full discretion, I told him, all right, dude, like, listen, we can do green screen for this, whatever. I was thinking we could try and do it practically. And he was about it. He was like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. Now, full discretion, you we were so young and dumb. And I'm so grateful and lucky that nothing ever happened. But yeah, we did a shot on a on a car. I had it was my friend Max on top of my grandma's hot red Subaru. Um it had like a little top, you know, rack where you can put skis and stuff. So he had like a place to anchor his feet. Um and then I was following uh in the back on a, a friend's pickup truck and I had like a little porta jib crane with like a C100 and we did like this really stupid tracking shot where he actually car surfed for like 5 seconds, but that that's probably the end of it there uh, i would never want to do anything like that <laughs> again that was so stupid but it felt so awesome in the time <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i mean sometimes they get you your most interesting shots i mean definitely um, one thing you know that i've i've learned over the past four years is you know you definitely don't want to be that person that's like anything for the shot and i think I'm humble enough right. to say that, like, maybe that was that type of person in high school. Um, granted, my friends were totally willing to be crazy with me, but I've since uh, matured and realized that, you know, like, definitely, like, you cannot be doing You can't be asking your friends to be doing crazy stuff. Yeah, and I think it's part of growing up as a filmmaker as well. We're all very passionate mm-hmm. about it, and at some point we're like, you know what, nothing's going to happen. Let's just mm-hmm. do it. Um, and then once you mature a little bit more, you're like, okay, that 1% that something can happen Mm -hmm. is also important. Um, so I think whoever is really passionate about this field at one point has done something that they should And to take that further, like, you know, happy crew equals better movie. Cause you know, the, the more you can, you know, the better you can treat your crew and prepare them to make the film on the day, like. You know, even as simple as getting them a proper breakfast, like you do that and the film's already on a better track to being made in a more well done manner. Like, you know, all those, you know, your crew is your apparatus and machinery into making the movie. And, you know, you keep them well fed, well oiled, well treated, and hopefully they treat you well, too. Um, Everything will go smoothly. Mm -hmm. And after... um what has been the expectation versus reality side of it after graduating from film school what did you expect and what did you maybe realize afterwards and i know it's a weird time Mm -hmm. right now so it's kind of very different uh, than what would have happened if it was normal but uh, what has been the main takeaway afterwards something that you expected versus Main main takeaway for me is, I mean, first of all, I didn't expect my life to be made the second I stepped out of film school. I've, you know, 
I've personally struggled to get jobs and a lot of friends have struggled too. And a lot of friends have been great at being able to get work. Like, you know, congrats to yourself on getting work. Uh, but the main thing, Thank the you. main thing I realized is probably at least if you're trying to do freelance, like to a, to a degree, it doesn't necessarily matter where you are. And I know, you know, it might be different for a lot of people, but I relocated back home to Colorado, you know, just to live in my hometown with my parents and save money for obvious reasons. Uh, and I realized, you know, like, people are still willing to like fly you out for some projects and you know they're still willing to you know get you on and I kind of you know I don't think that's something that's super sustainable it's not like I'm making a full living off of doing that like I'm definitely like trying to find work all the time but hopefully you you can get yourself to a point uh where it really doesn't matter where you want to be and you can you know kind of be in a place that makes you happy that's maybe more quiet than a city at least for me I like that idea and still be able to work um, but I feel, you know, our, especially our, our perceived trajectory of careers, especially when COVID hit was, uh, so odd and so different from what we would have expected if, if that didn't happen. So I don't know. I feel like I wasn't like terribly naive to the situation. I, I kind of like figured, Hey, like this is a gap year. I'm probably not going to be up to anything. I'm probably just going to be bumming at home. And I was. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you've been very pro- proactive during your film school four years. Um, I was also very pro- proactive. And it took me six years to kind of realize that you put yourself in this bubble and this bubble keeps growing and growing and it pops when you graduate and you realize that that safety blan- blanket, which is a school, doesn't exist anymore. There's no structure. Yeah. Now it's free for all. You got to yeah. do what you want to do. So during the first four years that I did my undergrad, I kept, uh, personally, I was pretty happy with what I was doing. I was um, doing bigger and bigger and bigger things. Um, in in the film school community, more people were knowing me and recognizing me for my work. So I was like, this is great. Um, because of some situations that happened, I went to do grad school. And when I started grad school, I kind of realized that this is scary because I got a taste of it when I graduated from undergrad Mm -hmm. for at least that one summer. And I was like, Whoa, this is not at all the same. Um, so I better start thinking of two years from now when I graduate again so that I can get somewhere and not just be paralyzed because I realize, Oh, school's over. And now it's just me, the real quote unquote adult world. Um, so I think, being proactive is super important because that's how you gain your experience and you get your value out of film school, but also knowing that this film school bubble will pop when you graduate. And then it's a world where everyone wants the job that you want and everyone's trying to get where you are trying to get. Um, You're competing with everyone. Mm -hmm. So I think people who keep that in mind are proactive, but also don't get fooled with this smaller film if you go to film school film school bubble um helps a lot i kind of changed my focus as well not really so i always liked writing and directing but i soon realized it's very difficult for me to get a job as a writer director out of film school so when i started grad school um again film major i was still writing and directing but i was making sure to edit more oh yeah um to build an editing portfolio as well, an editing reel as well. 
um, just to expand the amount of reels that I have so that I can apply to more jobs. Um, and that helped. And I think that's something that people don't realize. They're like, oh, I'm a director. Yeah. And that attitude just like does not, or I'm a producer. I mean, maybe you end up winning every film festival and like A24 comes to you and is like, hey, like come and make something mm-hmm. for us. Great. But that's a very, very, very low chance. Um, so kind of doing more and learning the market more and seeing what jobs are available yeah. more. Uh, I think are so important. And I only learned that after graduating undergrad. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be able to do grad school so that within that two years, I have my expectations right. And I'm building more towards what's going to happen two years from now, which oh, yeah. happened. I mean, that's also now. listening to yourself. And, uh, you know, I think everyone is in the right to have like a side hustle, so to speak, because you're right. Like you can't, re- it's not that realistic to come out and be like, oh, I'm going to write and direct f- for higher you know, and I'm, I'm gonna be great. That's so hard. But you know, as someone who's pursuing writing directing, that's always something that you can do while you're coming up and something that you can curate and you know, that only uh, gets better as you mature. But someone like a director or someone who wants to direct, like, for example, like you're doing editing is such a great thing to do. It's arguably like the, the closest thing to directing other than directing. And uh, it's such a, you know, tangible, tangible thing. That's the other, that's the other thing is like directing and writing is kind of more of an elusive job. You know, it's such a privileged job and, you know, not as tangible as say editing or like shooting or recording sound, you know, things. Those are like more, you know, dare I say real life uh, common um, needs of, you know, a lot of companies nowadays, especially nowadays because, you know, we're all... You know, I think a lot of companies that weren't taking advantage of visual mediums 20 years ago are definitely looking at them now, so. Mm-hmm. And the flip side of it is also complacency. So some people get jobs out of, so always they aspire to be a writer-director, they wanted to be a cinematographer. Mm-hmm. They graduate and they still get a film job, but it's uh, not necessarily that dream that they always Mm. had but then they have a good job and it's keeping them busy so they're like you know what i don't have time to do these other things that i used to do i don't have time to make a short film and that is also a dangerous spot to be in because you're complacent and you're comfortable and you get lazy and that's something that i'm pushing my friends to not do so that we can still make short films and i'm like you know what we have the talent one of these will it just takes one of them to get huge and then we'll pull each other up um so that's the flip side of it to be realistic but also still as you said do your side hustle um based on your dreams and based on your passion i think you can still be like specialized in a a type of thing but that side hustle or whatever you want to do on the side can also make you more well-rounded and i think that's an important thing is like you don't want to be a jack of all trades maybe you do maybe i'm wrong but you, you definitely want to be versatile. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's especially important. Yeah, still... Yeah, I would say even if you leave film... We go to film school because we choose our passion instead of uh, a, a, a route that's more clear-cut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, art is, like, the most complicated thing mm-hmm. ever. Um, so it's not like studying math or medicine or trying to become yeah. a doctor. Uh, where it's more clear and you're dealing with equations mm-hmm. and something that's factual. Uh, so we're choosing our passion. So 
just not forgetting that afterwards like you can still have a something you're of course get a job in what you're interested in depending on what's available um don't just go for anything that's also scary it's just it's a lot of balancing yeah. it's balancing but also remembering what you really want and what you want to do and that's you know it's and it's uh, very sure. easy for us to at the beginning of our careers say like you know don't burn out don't give up any of that stuff but it is a real thing like you know you we've all seen it we've all seen people that you know have worked and been burned or just pissed off all the time because of this and it's like if you're just going to be pissed off all day why do it like don't do something if you don't have a good time you know doing it even if it is like hard work and labor like you know don't put yourself in that position unless you enjoy it and also you know working hard you know your your creative mind and your inspiration is a muscle that you got to work out and you know t- for people who want to stay inspired and stay fresh and youthful in their mind so to speak that's something that you got to train especially as you get older you know you got wake up in the morning and stimulate your mind in a way that really makes you view the day with like, all right, I'm hungry. I'm going to go learn something or pursue it versus waking up and being complacent and being like, I, you know, I'm tired. I don't like this or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the last thing also I wanted to talk to you about is completely different. It's something that I never, I mean, I understand it, but it's kind of like the whole film digital thing. Aspect ratios, right? Sorry, say it one more time. To me, aspect ratios. Aspect ratios, gotcha. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a horrible transition, right? But I just, um, I find it so interesting. I think a lot of people have artistic definitions behind aspect ratio, and they're right. I understand that. But also, I think it does a lot with what people are used to mm-hmm. in thinking what is cinematic and what looks good and what doesn't before people were used to box formats and box tvs and everything was one one and then uh television wanted to compete with them they're like you know what let's do widescreen so 16 by 9 then they're like you know what let's do even wider let's do 239 and i know this has happened in the past as well but then i was listening to um an A24 podcast with uh, Robert Eggers and Ari mm-hmm. Aster. And they're the, you know, super nerdy conversation. And I just hated myself for enjoying that conversation. <laughs> but, um, you know, they were talking about the lighthouse and how uh, they wanted the two characters to feel trapped. So, but they also wanted to show the height of that mm-hmm. lighthouse. So they went with that aspect ratio. Um what do you think about different aspect ratios? Do you think different stories can be told in all aspect ratios? Or do you think there is a right aspect ratio? I think it is definitely story? possible for any story to be told in any aspect ratio. But that boils down to like, you know, the storyteller's specificity. Because that is undoubtedly like such a, a huge determining factor. Especially when it comes to lenses, of course. Um, but aspect ratios are a beautiful thing nowadays. Because in the past, whereas it was determined by physical manufactured you know gate you know in the in the film camera now you have these cameras that you know still have you know physical aspect ratios but you know i always joke around and say you can make a triangular film nowadays if you want to because it's nothing's really limiting you it's not like back in the day the mechanical limitations are what determines your aspect ratio like nowadays it's just like it's the difference between like this much black in your screen and that much black and that's just like a completely aesthetic decision, nothing that's uh, that has any utility, so to speak. 
So if you wanted to make a triangular film, a circular film, like you could do it. Nothing's stopping you. Um, I mean, I'm working on a film right now with Devin that's like, you know, we're we're about to be shooting the whole thing like vertical, not on iPhone, but we're about to be tipping the red and like shooting it completely vertical. And it's just an experimentation and it's a really fun thing to, to mess around with. And I don't know, everyone's different. Like I know people who are like really love 239 and like they think that's the gold and you know, they stick with that. I'm like, okay, all right, yeah, cool, that's great. Me as a cinematographer, I, you know, I feel like I have a really open mind because I'm always working with different aspect ratios and I find it's really exciting to frame for different aspect ratios, you know, even between 185 and 166, like the difference is so minuscule, but it, it honestly kind of invigorates me just like the subtle changes of space and the ratio and all that. And I don't know, it's, it's really exciting. The film that you guys are doing in a more vertical aspect ratio is there what was the reason that you guys because it's about a a famous tiktok girl who's kind of being exploited by her parents like her parents (laughs) are the ones that realize oh this is the money making thing Uh, it's called money maker um but the originally devin wanted to shoot it all uh vertical iphone and uh for creative reasons i feel like there needed to be a, a pivot where like a pivot was warranted for the for the format and so we landed on um, maintaining the vertical aspect ratio because it's motivated by the phone. And similarly to like the lighthouse, like we wanted to feel like this character is like boxed into like this reality that her parents are forcing upon her. And slowly throughout the film, we're actually going to be expanding it to eventually land to like, you know, 16 by 9 by the time she's made her kind of own personal choice for herself. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm one of those people who loves 239 just because I think it looks <laughs> it good. Does. I don't have any good reason. Um, and then now because of my job and we do a lot of, uh, it's not only that, but we do a lot of digital media videos that go on social mm-hmm. media. Um, digital media, every video is probably mm-hmm. digital media. But I mean, a lot of videos that go on social media and because people, a lot of them just watch it on their phones now I have to uh, produce and um, export a lot of projects in nine by sixteen. So it's it's it took some adjusting. Um, I just found it so strange in the beginning that I had never touched a vertical format mm-hmm. before during all my years, and then now that's the bulk of um, what I do. And, and oh, I also saw this picture. It was like a mixing studio and they were mixing this. Maybe it was for Quibi, just rest in peace. <laughs> but uh, they, they were they were mixing this project and uh, they had their screen flipped out because it was a vertical project. And it was the most weird side because it was this huge theater, uh, not a theater, but like a mixing studio. And the screen was vertical and it was just a very strange photo to look oh, yeah. at and that's uh i guess the future I mean, it's, it's just and... part of the future it's just the reality it's us adapting to the reality we live in and that's just you know it's not like widescreens going away or anything it's just verticals be- having a growing presence uh we did this commercial recently where we had to frame for both because the client wanted to deliver in you know 16 by 9 and 9 by 16 so that was that was odd too but I mean, it had his talking and it has, you know, once you lean into it, once you embrace it, it gets really exciting. 
and it has talking about the future of cameras like you know what if they can make cameras where like if you wanted to shoot a 9 by 16 commercial you know it, and you didn't have to like tip the camera or anything what if you could go and like flip the sensor or what if they started making sensors that were you know four by four essentially equal on all sides so it's a perfect square so that internally in the camera you could have it 60 by 9 or 9 by 16 and it wouldn't really make a difference um granted i think there's probably a lot of technical jargon that precedes those creative concepts that I have no idea about, but yeah, it's, it's exciting for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I'm just wondering like what could be the next popular aspect ratio after, um, 50 years. Well, I think nine by 16. I think right now there's a trend towards that like large format, like open gate look, you know, like I see, I see a lot of that happening. Like I think right now it might be trending away from two through nine just because large format is, you know, something that's kind of being revitalized or popping up with digital formats. So you see, I, at least I see that a lot. I'm not sure what other people are are seeing, but. Mm -hmm. Well, that was all um i really liked everything we talked about it was a lot oh, yeah. of fun always good talking about and some film stuff yeah. for anyone who's stuck along all the way this is going to be a band because it's the least interesting part of the podcast but uh the whole goal is to have conversation with people who are interesting and we can have a good film related conversation loosely film related um sometimes we can get technical but the ideal situation is for the conversation to appeal to everyone and for everyone to be able to enjoy it. And uh, it's going to be unedited. I want it to feel very unproduced and just a conversation that you're listening between two people.